somebody here at Master's College. We're here today to talk about what God's Word, His Word's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And I want you to turn today to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, and look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 to begin with. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Colossians chapter 2. Paul literally is saying to you today, watch out, beware, wake up. Colossians 2, verse 8 and 9 say, Beware, watch out, wake up, lest any man spoil you, literally take you as spoil, through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Jesus Christ. Who is he talking about here? Would you look up in verse 1 of chapter 2? Paul says this, what a great conflict I have for you. What a great struggle, some translations say, I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Why does Paul have a conflict for you and I? He knew that in the last day, 2 Timothy 3 would come out outrageous times that you would be living in these times and that many of the students at Master's College and right outside those doors would be like two statues that today stand in front of the L.A. Coliseum. When the Olympics were here, the artist was commissioned and he erected two amazing statues of a physically perfect male and a physically perfect female to, to commemorate the great Olympic Games. The only problem with the statues is they have no head. And that's the way the world treats you today, as though you have no mind, no head, and they're out to grab your head and capture you and captivate you with a lie. Romans chapter 1 tells us, stay in Colossians, however. I just want to mention to you something you already know. Romans chapter 1 tells us, God is wrathful. He is full of wrath, and he's revealing that wrath from heaven. Some people say, well, the recent earthquake really wasn't an expression of God's wrath. It was fill in the blank. But God is angry with sinners every day. He is angry with us. Why? Because when we knew God, we didn't glorify him as God. Second, because we weren't thankful. Are you grateful? Are you thankful today? Sometimes Christians can engage in that. And the third reason was that because they became useless in their imaginations and became fools, Changing the truth of God into the lie, worshiping the creature more than the creator. They're trying to make a monkey out of you. 
You see, the lie is evolution. You see, one of the distinctives of the Master's College is that you have a science department here that believes the Word of God and believes that there is truth you should know that can be scientifically documented and shown to everyone and is the greatest apologetic for the Christian faith. If you're a Bible major and you're planning to become a minister, Spurgeon would say the greatest illustrations for preaching are found in science. God has played out his themes throughout nature. It doesn't matter what realm you're studying or discipline, all threads lead back to the creation of the world, and God has this to say to you and I today. There is truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and people in the last days are going to be promulgating the lie. The lie is called evolution. It may be defined as a hypothesis that millions of years ago, lifeless matter acted on by natural forces gave rise to one or more minute living organisms which have progressively changed, always for the better, into all living and extinct plants, animals, including man. According to this lie, the earth became solid, the crust became inhabitable, and four to five billion years ago, only simple molecules, methane, ammonia, and water, were formed, and from this soup and slime, the whole first living particles were formed with their self-duplicating and mutating features, and the whole of man's existence is explainable on the basis of physics and chemistry. You stop for a minute. If I was selling soap, you probably would have bought a bar. I'd put it in real language. If I told you that this watch is going to come alive, start talking, walk out of here, and become a college student, would you buy that? Don't answer that question. It's the same idea, that inanimate matter is going to become living matter. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. And yet every evolutionist at some point in time makes that claim and says, I believe non-living stuff woke up and said, hey, I have a life. I need a car. I need an apartment. I need a girlfriend. I need a guy friend. Whatever. We've got to stay current. And Romans 1 tells us, well, you're not all sleeping. That's good. Romans 1 tells us that that is exactly where man will end up because, you see, evolution offers no explanation, plan, or purpose for man, for creation. But it goes beyond science theory and it becomes a philosophy of life that excludes God. Literally, the Bible will say, a fool's philosophy. The philosophy of a moron is the word, fool, because it says there's no God, Life has no purpose. Man is his own boss. I can do what I want. And economy is my only law. If I can afford it, why not? Julian Huxley, in Evolutionary Religion, Newsweek, December 7th, said, In evolutionary pattern or thought, there is no longer need or room for the supernatural. The earth was not created. It evolved. So did all the animals and plants that inhabited, including our human selves. Mind, soul, as well as brain and body, as well as religion. What I say to that is what the psalmist said in Psalm 120, verse 5. 
Woe is me that I dwell in Mesich. Mesich was the land of the barbarians. Folks, welcome to pagan nation America. You are living with the barbarians. You are living with people right outside those doors who actually believe they got here on their own and they have nobody to thank but themselves. And in all of this, God has placed you at the Master's College that has a division of science and mathematics that holds to a scientifically based special creationism. This division is staffed by more than five full-time faculty members who hold doctorates from prestigious institutions as the University of Southern California, Ohio State, Brown, University of Texas, Austin, Tulane, and on we could go. They bring a total combined effort of more than 66 years of teaching publication to the classroom, have authored or co-authored more than 200 publications, are noted lecturers, are noted authors, have done lots of field studies and lab work and are known by colleagues all across this nation. And we're here to tell you you do not have to buy that stuff. You will be a better scientist, you'll be more accurate in your observations and your decisions and your conclusions using God's Word as your hand lens and going like George Washington Carver and examining what God has wrought. Our main tenets are these, in case you didn't know them. They're in our book, but let me flesh them out slightly differently. There is a creator who divinely, purposefully designed you. Science supports the fact that he did this rapidly in literal days, not millennium. God created special kinds of animals and plants that remain as they are created, with some variations within the kind. God's creation was recent, at most 15,000 years or so, not 5 billion. And since creation, I mean, you'd have to be a fool to miss this one, there has been at least one great catastrophe, the Noahic Flood, that helps us explain all kinds of things, including our recent earthquake. Our creed, if you wanted to see it, would be Exodus 20:11. It says, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that was in them. Six days. But you'll ask, does this really matter? I mean, who cares? I mean, that's great. we got guys who know this stuff, and if I need to know that, I'll kind of go down and ask them a question. I'm sorry. You are personally responsible to be able to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. Because you will have a Mars Hill one day. You'll be put on the spot. And maybe it'll happen tomorrow that your relative from back in Ohio or the East Coast will phone you and say, hey, are you all right? We heard you had an earthquake. What are you going to say? Well, I guess I got lucky. Or are you going to give them the gospel of creation? You see, it's a creation imperative that we're talking about today. It is necessary. It is required that you be able to talk about 
creation. So would you look in Colossians 1? And I want to point out three things to you, and we want to flesh these out with our faculty today. In verse 16, three things you need to know about Jesus Christ, to have your head on straight, to have the fullness of all that God wants you to have and to possess and to claim as your own. Colossians 1.16 starts off with our first point. Number one, creation is a fact and Christ is is the creator look at verse 116 it says for by him all things were created did you catch that by him all things were created jesus christ created everything it was his hand fashioned work that made this universe and this earth he knows how it ticks he did that purposefully he is the Alpha. He is the first cause. And that person had you in mind. And when you study science, you're seeing his workmanship, which he has for your life. You have a purpose. He has a purpose for you. And you are his workmanship. Number two, we want you to see today, verse 17. He is before all things. And by him, all things consist. Point number two, there was a creation. Number two, there is conservation. Christ is the great conservationist of the universe. Literally, in Greek, the word is glues together, holds together. Jesus Christ holds it all together. And when he doesn't, your house comes down, your life falls apart, and you have a two, three hour, maybe you don't need to commute any longer because you died. Without him, nothing glues together. We have some of our faculty going to talk today about their science work here at the college where they focus on Christ's role as maintainer, sustainer, and strengthener of his creation. And then number three, we're going to end today with... The great conclusion, the great conclusion, you can see that in verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Christ is the great conclusion, the great conciliator. He is bringing it all together to a final completion. And we're living in those days. Think of it. You will see Christ. Can you imagine that? As he comes back, whatever happened to the rebel down here, who cares? Jesus Christ is coming again, and you and I, anticipating and lovingly looking for him, will see him return. Does that thrill you? Boy, if it doesn't, stand by. I've asked today, for point number one, Christ is the great creator who worked with purposeful design, Dr. Richard Lumsden. Dr. Lumsden is our newest faculty member. He has just uh, come here and joined our faculty. Formerly, he was at Tulane and Harvard and Rice at various times. He received his doctorate in cell biology. His specialty is parasitology. He served for more than 20 years on the faculties of 
medical graduate and undergraduate uh, faculties at Tulane University as a professor and research scientist. Presently, he is a national debater for ICR, Institute of Creation Research in San Diego, and also the uh, chair of their biology graduate program. Dr. Lumsden is going to come and talk to us now about purposeful design. Dear brother. Thank you, Professor Carruthers. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, kind of shook up in the process, but that's okay. We're sorting it out. Harvard graduate. <laughs> okay. You know, there are some ideas to which one is exposed in the course of one's secular education that only a Ph.D. could believe and earnestly profess from the pulpit of pedagogy. Among the more implausibly egregious is the notion of biological evolution, that the biosphere, as Lynn just pointed out, the animals, plants, and microorganisms inhabiting this planet, being the biosphere, came into existence essentially by chance, by altogether mindless, purely naturalistic, materialistic phenomena. Yet the very essence of biology lies in its complexity, its extraordinarily complex, highly organized arrays of chemistry and structure accomplishing specific functions. Randomness is its antithesis. Now, apart from biological systems, even an evolutionist can recognize the principle of intelligent design when he sees it. Indeed, archaeologists use evidence of purposeful design to distinguish human artifacts from natural objects, arrowheads and spear points and so on, for example, from weathered rocks. Now, from the standpoint of engineering, The wheel, along with its myriad applications to our technology, is perhaps the penultimate product of human ingenuity, man's inventive creativity. Wheels don't just happen. As William Paley made the point some 200 years ago, are not the cogs of a watch evidence of a watchmaker? Wheels and their purposeful applications don't come into being by blind, mindless, random processes, even in Detroit. The question, is there anything comparable to wheels in a biological system that would compel the conclusion of intelligent, purposeful design beyond the phenomenon of living organisms? Evidence, if you will, of an intelligent creator. Let's take an electron microscopist look now at what most evolutionists would consider the simplest kinds of organisms, bacteria. And note, when pondering bacteria, we have to think small. An entire bacterial cell is no more than a few thousandths of a millimeter in length, shown here on the point of a pin. 
Now, we may not yet know how many angels might dance thereupon, but we can count the bacteria. And many of them dance after a fashion using these motile flagella. The movement of these flagella, these processes, is rotational, uh, akin to a screw, like a ship's screw moving in the water, which generates a propulsive force. The structure attendant this function is predicated on that of the wheel, as I'll show you in a moment. Wheels turning on bearings with an efficiency undreamed of in our current technology. Moreover, these wheels are powered by an electrical current. The best analogy for the bacterial flagellar apparatus is that of the electric turbine. A device General Electric would certainly attribute to intelligent design, its engineering staff. These features are demonstrated in the following electron micrographs. And what we have here, first of all, is the bacterium and it shows specifically the insertion of one of these flagella uh, in the bacterial cell wall and cell membrane. Now, it's possible to detach these flagella from the bacterial cell, such as we've done here, and examine them at high magnification and resolution in the electron microscope. So what we're looking at here, then, is a detached bacterial flagella. And here we have a series of electron micrographs which show details of this insertion point. And here at the arrows, we see what we might interpret as series of grooves, flanges, uh, perhaps an axillar structure, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, as we take that flagellum seen here uh, from the side view and then turn that flagellum toward the plane of view. In other words, we're looking down on the base of that flagellum. The wheel-like structure involved otherwise with these flanges and grooves comes into focus. Now, before this structure was visualized, uh, biologists said that no such thing as a wheel exists anywhere in nature. Well, lo and behold, look what we've got, a wheel. Uh, if we look further at this basilar structure in this en face view and plug in one of Dr. Carruthers' computers to analyze the image and bring out certain of its structural features uh, in more apparent relief, this is what we've got. Does that look like a wheel? Bearing surface, axle, and so on. Now, mind you, this is in the simplest kind of organism known, the bacterium. So our interpretation then of this structure as we see it in the electron micrograph, albeit at more than a million times enlarged, uh, would have this interpretation with a series of wheels, bearings, flanges, and axles which pr produce this rotary motion. Now putting the thing back into the bacterium, uh, we have this composite where here is a flagellum, a universal joint if you will, an axle, these wheels turning on bearing surfaces. And notice these weren't turned out on a lathe, ladies and gentlemen. These are the protein products of the cell's genetic information. Okay? All right? These wheels turn. How fast do they turn, Doc? Up to about 20,000 RPM on, a on essentially a friction-free surface. What propels that rotation? Well, the membrane into which this lower apparatus is inserted sets up a current, specifically of hydrogen ions. 
this electrical current interacts with the proteins in these wheels and causes a spin, again, up to about 20,000 RPM. Now, there are chemical detectors in that membrane that can respond to various chemicals in the environment, food substances, certain wavelengths of light, and also toxic principles to the bacteria. Depending on the nature of the stimulus, whether it's positive or negative, the bacterium can reverse the spin of this flagellum so that what the bacterium can do is move in the direction toward a favorable environment or encountering difficulty, toxins, or whatever, can detect those, reverse the spin on the flagella, tumble in reverse course. One might ask, is this sort of scientific research biblical? Or is there a conflict between brute science and faith? See Romans 1, 19 to 20. We are to know God's qualities and existence by what he has made. At this point, electron microscopy reinforces the imperative of creation and thereby becomes an act of praise and worship even. Now, could a student making by his or her own hand and eye such discoveries as the structure and function of the bacterial flagellum hold the godless evolutionary paradigm with any credulity. At that point, does a student become a powerful witness, I ask you? Is there a place for such research in the master's college curriculum? I think so. That's why I'm here. Thank you. Continuing on, Christ is creator who purposefully designs, and then he is the sustainer, the one who causes all things to hold together. Dr. Dennis England is responsible for many of our upper division science courses in biology. Dr. Dennis England is responsible and charged with the development of environmental studies track whereby we are engaging in Christian stewardship of our environment. Rather than competing with the Creator, we want to engage and meaningfully contribute to conservation on our planet. Dr. England's interests range from oceanography, astronomy, particularly enjoys using the latter, astronomy, as an evangelistic tool by setting up his telescopes in campgrounds and picnic areas and interesting passerbyers in a discussion of just who made those sorts of things. Dr. England. Well, that's where my career began. It began with environmental studies at California, in the University of California, Berkeley. In fact, it, well, I was there right before the riots began. I didn't cause them. But uh, that's where my career uh, got a jump start. I was on a research team at Cal Berkeley myself, a uh, Catholic priest, a Jesuit, and a fellow from Israel, a Jewish fellow. And uh, we designed the sewage disposal system for Concord, California. So if any of you are from that area, and every time you go whoosh, you're welcome. <laughs> Now, you can better appreciate that comment 
because you have spent some time when you couldn't go whoosh. <laughs> now you know what it feels like. By the way, I want to make a statement to you. This is a very important statement. Only a born-again Christian can be a steward of this planet, period. You can hear other voices from the Sierra Club, other outlets from the government, other very well-meaning people, very well-meaning people, bless their hearts. But only a Christian can be a steward, because a steward is an assignment. God said he sent his prophets to Israel. Those prophets were assigned. They were sent. They did not select the job. In fact, many didn't want it, as you recall. God sent them. He said, you will be my spokesman. You will do what I tell you. They came from the Father, represented the Father. Christ said, now, as he obeyed the Father on earth, and as he represented the Father on earth, so will you. And that's where you're at right now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You notice I said if, because even in a crowd like this, statistically, there are going to be some of you that do not know the Lord. So take that seriously. That is an imperative. That has to come first. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That means he had to work before the fall. Work is not part of the curse. Are we going to work in heaven? I believe it, yes. We're not going to just strum around on hearts, harps <laughs> and float on the clouds. You know, it's like the fellow who said his wife was an angel. She's always flying around harping about something. Well, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to cultivate it. A new heaven and new earth. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From the any tree of the garden you made freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And of course Satan came along and said that wasn't true. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, Then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Now, gentlemen, it doesn't mean you don't listen to your wives. That This means you do take leadership in the home, though. And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Today you and I bear thistles and thorns from our work. We do a lot of work, a lot of sweat that is not profitable. We're on this side of Eden, folks, and let's realize it. That's why the fruit of our efforts are not like it was before the fall. And you and I are still at that place. Matthew 5.35, Christ made a very important statement that at the time was not well understood. Matthew 5.35, let me just back up a verse. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, or, for it is a throne of God, or by the earth, for it is a footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. Now, the direct context here I'm not really dealing with, but the concept is here that the earth belongs to God. He never gave it to anybody. He did not give it to man. He didn't say this is your earth. You do with it as you please. It's there for your profit. He never said that. 
Never, never did he say that. It belongs to him. The plants and animals belong to him. We are to be stewards. That means we're to care for it. How can we do this? Well, the reason we can do it is because we're created in his image. Look at Genesis 1, 25 through 28. And like many tell you, you're going to wear off some gold leaf. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and God and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the earth after its kind, or everything on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And subdue it did not mean to exploit it, did not mean to destroy it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God has never rescinded that command. When he put them out of the garden, he did not say, Oh, by the way, forget that command I gave you earlier. He never did that. This command holds today. You personally are responsible for this command given right here. God holds you accountable for this command. He gave it to each one of us. We're accountable for it. This doesn't mean you become an equal nut and go out and start ramping and raging. This means you're responsible for the place God placed you and what you're doing and for your thoughts and actions. God made us in his image, and because of that, we can care for his creation as he made it. Because we're in his image. Look at 1 Corinthians 11:7. 7. 1 Corinthians 11.7. It states, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. Man is the image and glory of God. This doesn't mean that one head, two eyes, two arms, two legs, uh, and so forth, makes you an image of God. That is not what it's talking about here. This goes far, far more reaching. You are a mirror to be a mirror that people can see Christ in. The image. You're not God, but you're to portray the image. You're to be the image of God. And Christ said, greater things than I've done will you do after his spirit comes. But this image, this image is tarnished. This image is dark. This image is dead in the unregenerate man. Only as you're regenerated will you show this, this true image that you have. Christ is a culmination of that image. Go to Colossians chapter 1 as Dr. Crothers started out. Verse 15, Christ, referring to him, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, he is the image of the invisible God. That means if you want to know what the true untarnished image of God is, it is Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are an image of Christ, and I'm giving you an assignment because I believe in the accountability of the Word of God. You do not hear the Word of God without being accountable. Therefore, you are to look up in the Scripture. I'm going to hold you to this now. You are to look up in the Scripture what the Bible says about you soaring like an eagle. You soar like an eagle in the strength of Christ, not in your own. He has just kicked you off the cliff. Last Monday, 
He kicked you off the cliff, literally, and now you are to soar like an eagle and not run around like a turkey buzzard like the rest of them. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Dr. Taylor Jones is another one of our uh, conservers on campus. He is uh, uh, one of those who teaches all of our chemistry classes. I know none of you would be distracted. No, wait a minute. Get Come on. You must watch yourself. Now, I hope no one's asleep. Faculty? <laughs> Dr. Taylor Jones came to us from the Naval Academy. He teaches our chemistry classes here and has on occasion taught mathematics, physics, physical science, and Bible. Enjoys developing new methods of chemical uh, pedagogy with an emphasis on electronic behavior and as a tool to understand chemical reactivity. Both he and his wife, Kim Jones, who teaches in our music department, were saved through the ministry of an English-speaking church in Basel, Switzerland. Dr. Jones, we've asked to come and speak for a few minutes on being personally correct by being clear about your commitment to creation. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here um, in spite of some of the distractions. What I want to speak to you about this morning uh, is... A good Welch sermon, all good Welch sermons have three points. This has three points. And for you, it speaks to you as non-scientists. Most of you are not scientists. And so someone who comes to you and rejects creation scientists, this has implications for you because you're, you're not like us. As you all know, we are different. <laughs> the first point I'd like to make for you is that if you reject creation science or if someone comes to you rejecting creation science, the first thing that that person does is reject a portion of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in the Gospel of John, if you will, to the first chapter. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Verse 3, it says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Notice it does not say that Christ moderated the evolution of life, but rather he brought it into being by himself, fully complete, perfect in every way. So if one rejects creation, what one is doing then is rejecting a portion of the work of Christ. Secondly, to reject creation is to deny the character of God. To reject creation is to deny the character of God. Flip over to a familiar verse that you all know, 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. We all know this verse. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And, of course, you know from your studies that the word inspired is the word God breathed. So God then spoke the scripture forth. Why is that important for us? Because we know he spoke not only the words of Genesis 1, but also even to the last words of the scripture in Revelation. 
Turn over one page to Titus 1. Look at verse 2 where we read about the God who cannot lie. Does this mean that God lacks the power to tell a falsehood? No, it merely means that when he speaks, he must speak in conformity with his character. His character is truth. When he speaks, he speaks truth. Wherever he speaks, it is truth, whether that be in Genesis 1 or anywhere else in the New Testament. So then to reject what God has said about his creation in Genesis 1 is to call God a liar, to deny his character, to make him like man. Third point, to reject creation removes the confidence that we have in the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us. I would say to you, if you do not believe what God has said about creation in Genesis 1, you can have no confidence that there is, in fact, a real redemption. Because if God lied or distorted or twisted or somehow approached obliquely the things that he said in Genesis 1, you can never have any confidence that the tomb was empty. And we know from Romans 4.25, he who was delivered up for our transgressions and was raised, why? Because of our justification. If the tomb is not empty, there is no redemption, beloved. If God did not raise Christ from the dead, the debt that he paid on Crowley's cross was not acceptable, there is no redemption. And you cannot say, yes, God, I will accept redemption because I believe you, and yet I will look at other aspects of your word and deny what you say. So to reject creation, then, is to deny and remove and undermine the confidence that we have in the only redemption that exists under heaven or earth. Now, certainly it is not necessarily the intent of individuals who attack creation to do this, but the effect is to attack our God by attacking his character, to attack our Christ by undermining his work, to undermine our confidence in the word of God, but most importantly and completely to undermine the faith that we have in our creator Christ. Thank you very much. You know, Romans number uh, chapter 1 tells us that one of the gives them up is that God gave them up to a depraved mind, a mind that's no longer capable of logical thinking. You know, sense is no longer common. There's no longer common sense. And Dr. Fong, our recent addition to the math department, and I see this all the time because logic has been thrown out. And Christ is the logic, the reason for the universe. It's hard for people to do math these days. Not people on this campus, however. Dr. Fong comes to us having received his bachelor degree at uh, UC Berkeley, a master's and PhD from Brown University. He's worked on a number of supercomputers, served as a postdoc in Florida, Rhode Island, uh, recently in the uh, Santa Barbara area as a consultant. Enjoys good food, classical music, movies. Enjoys working with a youth group. Faculty have lives outside this campus, and he is a minister at a Chinese uh, church in the San Fernando Valley. Dr. Fong, would you please come? I'm going to speak on something a little bit different from my colleagues. Now, some time ago, I saw this comic strip, a comic strip in a newspaper. And unfortunately, I don't have the original anymore. And this is a 
a commencement speaker here in his caps and gowns here. And the caption reads, I suppose all of you are haunted by the question, is a sheepskin worth 60,000 big ones? So yeah, my answer to that is no. If you don't agree with that, come and see me. I'm happy to see, sell you a piece of sheep, sheepskin for a lot cheaper than that. So Now that brings up a question. Why are you here? Why, why do you come to the Master's, master's College? Why, why do you spend so much money over four, four years to come here? Well, many of you, excuse me, can I, sorry, sorry, okay. Well, some of, these are some of the reasons that you, that you listed here. Some of you come here to have the time of your life. Some here, some of you come here to work on your MRS degrees, you know, on your, you might get your MBA in the future, but uh, some of you want to get your MRS, but, but many of these reasons are good, but, but don't forget, but do not, but, but don't forget your academics. After all, academics is the only thing that we give a grade on in this college. But you might ask, why, why do we spend so much time and effort on studying, doing your homework and go to classes or things like that? I mean, what are these things good for? Well, one of the objectives of doing these things is to learn about learning. Now, the techniques of learning learning um, things on different subjects are different. For instance, the way we teach English, math, and music are different here. But the process of learning is, is similar. And um, now the second, second objective um, of, um, for, you, um, for why you spend so much time on these things is learn how to do a task well. First uh, Corinthians 4.2 says, it is required that a steward be found faithful. Now, um, I suppose that by now you guys figure out that in order to get a good grade, you have to do your homework, you have to study, and you have to go to class. It's part of, it's part of learning how to do a task well. Now, what good, what good is that for when you leave here? Well, there are two main qualities that employers look for when you, when you, um, when you want to look for a job in, um, when you leave here. Now, the two, two things are, among others, the two most important ones are competence and faithfulness. Now, competence, uh, an employer is going to ask uh, himself when, he, when, he, when he's interviewing you, is that, can this person do the job? Or if he doesn't know how to do this job, can he, learn, can he learn how to do it? Now, we cannot, at this college or any college for that matter, we cannot possibly teach you everything that you need um, for your future jobs. Now, what is a hot field uh, today is going to be outdated tomorrow. So we cannot, but, but instead, instead, we could hopefully we could teach you about the learning process that you could learn that you could learn things in the future. Now, the second things that that an employer employer um, want is looking for for prospective employees that uh, is faithfulness. Can he count on you to get a job done? That, that this is where this part comes in. The second thing, second objective here. Now. Now, so all those things we, we teach you here, not only math and science division, but everywhere, does have bearing in, on your future future life as you leave, leave this college here. Now, the second question I want to address today is one closer to home, is why study math? You know, after all, I teach math over here. One of the most common questions that I hear from people is that, what, what good is math for? Well, from the pure math point of view, for the so-called pure math point of view, and this is a historical how historically um, reason why people study math is that people learn math for its beauty 
and intrinsic values. Believe it or not, believe it or not, there are such things. And it is the same, it is, it is similar reason why you study poetry and art. Now, now you, you might, many of you might argue, well, I think, I, I have a such hard time, you know, I'm struggling in my math class. Uh, I, I think I could get by in life without knowing algebra, trigonometry, or, or calculus. Well, that's true. You also can get by in life without knowing Shakespeare or the finer points of predestination. Now, however, you will be a much better um, knowledgeable person and your life which will be much more enriched if you know about these things, if you know about Shakespeare or predestination and math. So, now, the second reason why people study math, this is my, my personal preference. It's where, it's where I come from. It's, it's the area of applying math. Which, which stress the application of mathematics to, to, our, um, to our world. Math has been called the queen of, of sciences in the sense that every sciences, in every science uses math, including social science. And uh, in, in, um, in, the, in the world that we live in, the uh, technological world that we live in, mathematics is a language of the technological world, world. Now, the third reason to learn math, this is my last point here, is that you learn how to think analytic, analytically. This is a point that Dr. Carruthers was alluding to earlier. Now, mathematics, by nature, is problem solving. You're forced to have to think, you have to think things out logically, to solve problems step by step. And math is a great way to do it. So I guess um, that's all I have to say today. Thank, thank you. Goodness, my goodness. Please, don't terrorize the faculty. <laughs> we have uh, our esteemed colleague, Dr. George Howe. He is our patriarch. He is the founder of the Science Division. He is a man who has shown that creation and conservation mean commitment. Not only must you think analytically, not only must you know the logic behind the universe, not only must you know there's a creator, but it demands a commitment of your life. Because we're at the end of things. We're on the last lap. And that's why I commend to you a man who has run the race well. He is a leader in the field of creation science. He has served as a past president of the Creation Research Society and the present editor of the Creation Research Society quarterly. He is a botanist primarily interested in the flora found around the region surrounding the Grand Canyon. And by the way, if you're interested, we are doing research there this summer that will lead to a publication whereby you as an undergraduate can uh, sit under Dr. Howe, Dr. Lumsden, and our faculty here and publish a piece that will be a track, if you will, to those who are still caught in the lie. Dr. George Howe, would you come? Thank you for that ovation, which is uh, much appreciated, but uh, ill-deserved. It's a privilege to be here and to uh, speak about creation. And I'm impressed with my colleagues up to this point, even this Simeon who keeps going back and forth here, uh, with the fact that each one of them has demonstrated and reflected the fact that uh, creationism is about the creator. It's not a matter of 
I or someone else speaking about how great our research might be. Uh, we are the creationists and knowledge doth end with us. But instead, it's a matter of pointing our colleagues to evidences which demonstrate God's handiwork in nature. And we've seen a number of things, haven't we? All the way from sewage lagoons in Berkeley to rotating flagella on bacteria. We've talked about math and other subjects. And I wonder, Dr. Lumsden, if you might uh, author some kind of paper concerning the prophets. And maybe here with this bacterial rotor, we have the true meaning of a wheel within a wheel. I'm not sure, but uh, I'll let you investigate that. You've all read about the wheel within a wheel, Ezekiel somewhere. Anyway, uh, a few definitions at the onset here. We represent the science department. And do you know the definition of the three major sciences? It goes something like this. If it's green or wiggles, it's biology. If it stinks, that's called chemistry. And if the experiment doesn't work, that's physics. <laughs> and perhaps you know that the uh, difference between uh, a biologist and a psychologist. Well, a biologist is one who... Uh, uh, or a magician and a psychologist. The earthquake is the earthquake is affected by psyche, although my head wasn't struck. Uh, the the difference between a magician and a psychologist is that uh, the uh, magician pulls rabbits out of hats, right? Well, a hard-going, hard-nosed psychologist pulls habits out of rats. The reverse. Anyway, perhaps you're interested in. And how I got started on creation research. I went to a college where the, uh, we heard several different views. In one class, I would learn about young earth creationism. In another area, we'd learn about long age progressive creation. And uh, my own major professor didn't take much of a stand either way. I left college as a creationist, but not really clear on how God created or when he created. In graduate school, I was impressed. Some of you are going to graduate school. I was impressed with the fact that they didn't really care whether I believed in creation or evolution as long as my research and my teaching was competent. Sometimes that wasn't true, but I got through anyhow. And so maybe that's a, a, a stimulus for you to continue going to graduate school. You know, that's a way to stay out of a very shaky job market for a few more years, to pursue your graduate education. All they really ever posed for me on a doctoral exam was who was Charles Darwin. And, of course, the answer that he was the one who popularized the dogma of evolution. And at a coffee table one time with one of my colleagues, an interesting question uh, came up. He posed for me this problem. If you believe in a flood with an all-wise creator, how did plants survive and come back after a global flood? And at the time, I didn't have a ready answer, but the question uh, lodged in my mind. And some years later, it's my privilege to be reading a book entitled The Origin of Species. You've heard of that one. It was written by Sir Charles Darwin. And uh, in this book on the origin of species, Darwin performed a rather malodorous experiment. He was curious as to how uh, seeds and other propagules of plants could make their way all over the earth, as it seems they have. And he wondered if seeds could survive in salt water. And so he allowed pigeons to feed on numerous types of seeds. And then 
he would uh, kill the pigeons and let them soak in a cage down in the ocean near his establishment. And he would return and at, after certain periods of time would open the chicken's crop and pull out the seeds and see if they would still germinate. That's why it was, in fact, a malodorous experiment. As time went on, these uh, dead pigeons didn't get any more pleasant. Well, uh, as it turned out, Darwin discovered that uh, for quite a while, these seeds remained viable, that the salt water had little or no impact on them. Well, around the year 1962, I thought it would be interesting to see if, perchance, seeds themselves, not inside of a pigeon's crop, but just seeds uh, could themselves could be floating in salt water and germinate afterwards. So I went down to the beaches of Santa Barbara and would bring home 20-liter jugs of salt water and soak my seeds in that back at the greenhouse at Westmont College. And as time went on, it was fascinating to find that the Creator has put uh, such viability into these small things that grow and form new plants, such viability that even after more than 100 days soaking in salt water, four out of six species were able to survive uh, when they were simply put into uh, pots and germinated. So the answer to the idea of how plants could have survived a flood when we know that roots of plants get destroyed by immersion in salt water I think hinges on the use of seeds and that after the flood, the Creator restored life in many cases uh, by seeds just like this. Well, I'd like to say that on uh, February 11th, it's going to be my privilege along with Dr. Lumsden to be speaking on creation. And we'll invite you to come at that time and suggest that uh, some of you in various science classes will receive bonus points, and not as Dr. Carruthers sometimes says, bogus points, but real bonus points, for attending the February 11th lectures. And we understand, both Dr. Lumsden and I, that not all people are well-versed in science. I even met a, stu a student one time who said, you know, Dr. Howe, I know so little about science that if you were to talk to me about copper nitrate, I would think you were discussing policemen's overtime. Now, no one here, no one here is that illiterate when it comes to science. But some of you do not feel that science is your forte. I would like to encourage you to attend that meeting anyway. Dr. Lumsden and I believe that the talks will benefit any of you, no matter what level of scientific training is yours. So together with Carruthers and all the others, we invite you to the... Uh, to the February 11th seminar. Thank you very much. Could we, could we have every head bowed because we want to bring our chapel to a close for just a minute? As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to bring your mind back to our original premise. Christ is the creator. Christ is the one who conserves, the great conservationist. Christ is, lastly, the one who will bring it all to a conclusion. As we think about the gospel of creation and being at the end of the age, God has written to us like he did to the Laodiceans in Revelations chapter 3. He said, this letter is from the one who is the Amen, the beginning and the ending of the creation of God. At the end of the age, he says, behold, I stand at the door 
and knock. Jesus Christ is on his way. I don't know where you stand with him today, but we would be remiss to let this chapel service go without reminding each